CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Himalaya. Hey, Betsy, what time is it? Time for coffee. My name is Samir Benoit, and I own Milka Coffee Roasters here in Sacramento, California. We're a coffee shop and roastery serving specialty coffee. Our friend Samir has told us a lot about the decisions business owners like him make every day. He told us that he really needs to consider his rivals. It's not just Samir's current rivals that he needs to worry about. He needs to keep an eye on potential rivals who could open up shop, take away some of his customers, and drive his profits down. Sacramento is definitely a, a coffee town. Milka Coffee Roasters is located in downtown Sacramento. We've got one coffee shop that's literally one block up from us, and then two more coffee shops that are about three blocks down the street, closer kind of to the city center. And I would be worried if, like, someone were to come in. Like, one more shop, I think, would be fine. But if it was, like, two to three more shops, like, one to two blocks away, I think we would see oversaturation in the market. And that would bring all of us down and possibly cause one of us or a few of us to exit the market. These are all considerations about entry into a market and exit from a market. They're the central forces that guide how profitable a business is going to be in the long run. And entry, exit, and long-run profitability are our topics on this edition of Think Like an Economist with me, Betsy Stevenson. And I'm Justin Wolfers. We're here to teach you the super tools of economics to transform your life. Nestran Tavakoli Farah is with us. So many people dream of starting their own business, and these days everyone talks about passion and purpose and changing the world and all these big concepts, but ultimately you're going to want to make money. Yeah, we economists tend to see through the romance of things, and the reality is that people tend to start businesses when they smell profits. And there's a ready supply of entrepreneurs willing to enter a market if they think they can make a buck. Samir just told us how Sacramento is a coffee town, and that's why he thinks he can make money selling coffee in Sacramento. The same logic works elsewhere. Maybe you live near office buildings, so you could set up a dry cleaner, cleaning people's suits and pressing their business shirts. Or perhaps you live near a baseball park or a football stadium, so you can make money selling hot dogs or t-shirts just around the stadium. There are endless examples, really. In each case, new businesses will keep opening up in a market as long as they think they can make a profit. And perhaps this sounds surprising, but this idea that profits attract new entrants, that idea will ultimately destroy the market's profitability. So it is kind of a crazy counterintuitive idea. The fact that there is profits is what's going to destroy your profits. Let me explain, and we'll stick with Samir's market. If he's making good money selling coffee in Sacramento, let's say he's making a dollar of profit on every coffee he sells, well... That's pretty lucrative. And that profitability is great news for Samir. But it's also a message to potential entrepreneurs that they can make good money if they open a coffee shop in Sacramento. 
So that'll encourage more people, more entrepreneurs to open coffee shops. We call this the rational rule for entry. This is the idea that smart entrepreneurs will enter a market if they think it's likely to be profitable. So let's work through those next steps. The new coffee shops are new competitors for Samir. So he might lose some of his customers to them. He might also have to cut his prices to try to stay competitive. So the sad fact for Samir and his fellow coffee shop owners is that this greater competition will mean that they're each selling less coffee at a lower price. That'll reduce their profitability. That'll reduce everyone's profits a bit. But if it's still a profitable industry, then even more entrepreneurs might decide to open up new coffee shops. Those new entrepreneurs are going to reduce profitability some more. But if the industry is still profitable, even more are going to enter. So this process of new coffee shops entering the market and reducing the sector's profitability will continue until there's no more incentive to start a new coffee shop. That happens when the sector's no longer profitable. And so new businesses keep entering a market until it's no longer worth it. And that happens when no one's making a profit anymore. Yeah, and the reverse to all this happens as well. Samir says that if two or three more shops open up nearby, then some of the existing coffee shops are likely to close and exit the market. If there's too many coffee shops and not enough demand, then it may not be profitable for some of them to be in business anymore. They're losing money, so they might be better off closing, which is the same as saying they'll exit the market. There's no point doing business if they aren't making profits. And so as some of these shops close... That means the remaining coffee shops are going to regain some of their profitability as they get some of those customers back and they can raise their prices a bit. The number of coffee shops adjusts so that in the long run, no one makes any profits. Wait, no one makes any profits? That's right, Naz. No profits. Let's dig into what we mean by this. So what do you mean that no one's making profits in the long run? Do you mean that no one's making any money, literally? Not quite. When economists talk about profits, they're talking about what we call economic profits, which is money above and beyond a normal return to an entrepreneur on the time and money they invest. So business owners like Samir aren't starving. They're just earning a normal profit, enough to get by, but not more than they'd earn if they got a regular job instead. Think about it. It's enough to keep Samir doing what he's doing rather than taking his next best option. So when economists talk about zero profits in the long run, think of it as being zero profits after we pay the entrepreneur a wage for the time they spend running the business and we pay them interest on the money that they've put into it. Okay, and so what does this mean for prices in the long run? A simple trick here is to think of your profit margin per item that you sell. So for Samir, that means thinking about his per unit profit margin as the price he sells a coffee for minus the average cost of a cup of coffee. And remember that his average costs include accounting for the fact that he has to effectively pay himself a salary to run the business. So if new coffee shops enter the market until economic profits are driven down to zero, this means that their profit margin per cup must also be zero. Okay, so Samir's profit margin is the price he sells a coffee for, less his average cost of making a coffee. Then if the profit margin is zero, that must mean the price of coffee is equal to the average cost of making it. That's right. In any industry where businesses can freely enter or exit the market, the price is going to be equal to the average cost of whatever they're making. So if the price is above average cost, then the industry is profitable, which causes new firms to enter and this competition will push the price down. 
And if the price is less than the average cost, then the industry is unprofitable because there's too many businesses in the market. So some of them will shut down and this reduced competition is going to push the price up. That's right. The big idea here is that in the long run, prices are determined by entry and exit dynamics. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. We've covered how if we have free entry and exit in a market, then in the long run, profits will be zero. Yeah, and I don't want to depress Samir or our listeners or you, Naz, because it's still possible to make money. The crucial word you said in that last sentence is if. If businesses can easily enter a market, they'll drive profits down to zero. And if they can't, well, your business just might remain profitable in the long run. This big if is what a lot of business school in the field of business strategy is all about. Existing businesses understand that if they can make it hard for new rivals to set up shop, then these existing businesses can earn excess profits or earning economic profits. So they'll do what they can to deter new rivals from opening up. Businesses can be strategic and try to construct barriers to entry. These are obstacles which make it hard for a new business to enter the market. Different firms will use different strategies, but there are four big ideas that they're all drawing on. The first set of strategies to prevent new businesses from entering your market are called demand-side strategies because they're all about focusing on your customers. One of the things businesses try to do is create customer lock-in. What they're doing there is trying to get their customers to stick with them even if new companies are entering their market and offering lower prices. One way to lock in your customers is to create switching costs, which will make it hard for them to switch to buying from another business. A great example is the way that Apple makes it hard for you to switch phones. If I use an iPhone, then I've also purchased a ton of apps. If I want to buy an Android phone, then I'll have to buy those apps again because I'll need to buy the Android version. So I'm stuck using Apple. Another common example is when airlines give you frequent flyer points. By collecting points, you can get a discount on future flights. So it's an incentive for you to keep flying with that airline and effectively make it costly for you to switch to a different airline. Samir told me about one way they encourage their customers to keep coming back to milk or coffee roasters. We try to build loyalty in our customers by giving them kind of a rewards program where they'll get $5 off for every $50 they spend. It's pretty generous, but... I think that really, for our regulars, they really like, they love that. And they spend a lot of money here. So we want to make sure that they feel like we're giving them something back without a lot of strings attached. 
Another way to create customer lock-in is through network effects. Yeah, these are about how a product is more useful if more people use it. A good example is messaging apps. You can only use a messaging app if other people are using it as well. So even if I don't like WhatsApp, for example, I'm still going to have to use it if all of my friends are using it. Yeah, right. So you're not going to swap to some other messaging app if none of your friends are using it. Who would you message? Business managers understand all this, so they work hard to create network effects because it makes it harder for new firms to enter a market and succeed. These managers are pretty savvy, and they come up with some pretty subtle ideas. An example is thinking about how people buy cars. People tend to stick with well-known brands, and it's not just because Toyota and Ford make good cars. It's also because of the network effects that come from the big network of dealers that can offer you repairs on the road, no matter where you are. If you've gone on a car trip, you know you can pull into that Toyota dealer and get your car fixed and have the part hopefully in stock. Okay, so demand-side strategies, focus on making your customers stick with you even if new rivals enter your market. The second approach to maintaining these excess profits or positive economic profits is to use supply-side strategies. These strategies focus on the businesses which are the supply side of the market. The key idea here is you want to develop unique cost advantages so your business will continue being profitable even if it isn't profitable for potential rivals to enter the market. So the marginal principle is key here. Remember we've already said how businesses will keep opening up in a market until profits are zero? Well, that's another way of saying that the last firm that enters or exits a market, the marginal firm, expects that its profits will be zero. Its profits will be zero. But if you have lower costs, then your firm will be profitable. You've just got to develop cost advantages that that marginal firm can't easily copy. Businesses can reduce their costs by becoming more efficient. This is often a result of just doing something long enough to become an expert in it. Economists call this learning by doing. Another approach to creating cost advantages is through research and development. It's not just about developing new products. Research and development can also be about creating new and more efficient ways to do what you already do. Toyota is especially famous for this, and it produces cars at a lower cost than many of its competitors. This makes it hard for new car manufacturers to enter the market. Speaking of Toyota, mass production also pushes its costs down. It's cheaper to make car parts for 10,000 cars than to make car parts for five cars. All this prevents newer and smaller firms from entering the car market. Supply-side strategies really revolve around inputs, given these strategies are about reducing costs. Yeah, so another way to get cheaper inputs is through your relationships with suppliers. If you're a valued customer for a supplier, they're going to want to keep doing business with you as you grow. Part of Walmart's success is it's so big that it has more bargaining power than anyone else. And so its suppliers offer Walmart better wholesale prices. Yeah, in this example, bigger firms can have greater leverage with suppliers and the suppliers are likely to really depend on bigger businesses. Supply-side strategies can be harder for smaller businesses to use, as Samir explains. Currently, we're not a big enough company to have special relationships with suppliers, and most of our suppliers are small companies that are local that we want to make sure we pay them what they're worth. Another thing big companies can do is try to limit access to key inputs for their competitors. A lot of startups in Silicon Valley complain that it can be hard to hire really talented computer programmers as they're likely to be working for a big company such as Google. If you're a startup, it could be hard to compete with Google for that top talent, and that effectively shuts you out of the software market entirely. 
The third way to create barriers which prevent new firms from entering a market is through the use of government regulations. These can make it really hard to start doing business. In some countries, it's really hard to set up a new business, which of course helps the existing businesses. There are all sorts of procedures you need to follow. On average, it takes 84 days to start a business in Brazil, compared to six days in the US and around one day in New Zealand. By the way, regulations aren't always bad. In the US, you can't just open up a school or a hospital, and that's for pretty good reasons. You may also need a license to enter certain markets, such as if you want to sell real estate. These end up limiting competition. The other thing that limits competition is patents. And these are really important in, say, the pharmaceutical market. If you invent a new product, then you can apply for a patent from the government, which basically says that no one else can use your idea without your permission. A patent essentially gives your company a monopoly. The government grants patents so that businesses will invest in research and development, but it means that no one else can enter their market. Some firms will lobby the government to create new regulations that can make it hard for new firms to enter a market. For instance, lobbyists for taxi companies argue that it's really important for public safety that only licensed taxi drivers be allowed to drive passengers around. But they didn't really care about public safety. They're really interested in limiting competition from ride-sharing companies like Uber. And in some cities, they've succeeded in persuading politicians to ban Uber. And that has kept taxi company profits high in those cities. Sometimes people are surprised to see businesses going to the government to lobby for regulation. I mean, after all, businesses supposedly hate regulation. But when you're a bit more cynical, you see that it's rarely about defending the public interest. And it's more about preventing new companies from being able to compete with them. And... No, in a lot of ways, that's what we saw with taxi drivers lobbying to try to keep Uber out. We've looked at a range of ways to deter new firms from entering a market, from the demand and supply sides to using government regulations. Now, there's another way too, and that's simply by using brute force. Yes, sometimes companies will really threaten to crush new rivals, and this can scare a new firm off from even trying to enter. Yeah, and there are infamous tales of companies threatening their rivals. So, for example, CEOs taking rivals on private jets and detailing all the ways they're going to crush the other company. Yeah, and a company needs to be able to back this up for this threat to be credible and therefore for it to work. One way is to build excess capacity. That's a way of signalling you have not only the desire to flood the market, but also the ability, and that could very quickly make entering the market very unprofitable. Having deep pockets also shows that a business is willing to fight a rival. Apple has around $240 billion of cash on hand. It's an extraordinary amount of money. You know, business experts see this as a signal, a way of Apple telling potential rivals that it can survive a long and costly fight for its share of the market. We seem to be speaking about fighting quite a lot. Yeah, this can be like a war, and a firm's reputation for fighting can be really helpful. You mentioned Uber, who at their peak had a reputation for crushing rivals, and my guess is they deterred other rideshare companies from entering their market. There's another method to deter your rivals, and that's really to leave them no space in the market by dominating the market with your brand. We see this a lot in the food industry. Kellogg's makes a huge range of breakfast cereals, from Bran Flakes to Cocoa Pops and everything in between. It's really hard for a new firm to figure out where they're going to enter amongst all those Kellogg's cereals. 
business executives spend a lot of resources building these barriers to entry to prevent new firms from entering markets. But are these actually good for society? Well, from the narrow perspective of an individual business, they're great for that business because it's the only way for that business to continue being profitable. But from everyone else's perspective, they're terrible. Part of the problem is that barriers to entry prevent potentially productive businesses from being started. And markets work best when new businesses enter and compete with incumbents, driving prices lower. New businesses drive inefficient incumbents out of the market and provide a constant source of renewal. Consumers do best when there's a lot of competition. So you have lots of options to choose from and you can get the best product at the best price. But existing businesses earn the most excess profit when they create barriers that limit the competition. Betsy's describing a tension at the heart of capitalism, which is that markets work well when they're competitive, but businesses will do all they can to create barriers to entry to throttle that competition. So markets work best with fierce competition. But because competition destroys profits, businesses try to destroy competition. Yep, the tension here is that markets work best when there's vibrant competition, but incumbent businesses are often going to do all they can to crush that competition. This understanding leads to a new way for thinking about our policy debates. A lot of people who think they get economics will say that they're pro-business. But what economic reasoning points to is the need for policies to be pro-market, and pro-market is not always pro-business. Pro-business policies help existing businesses. But pro-market policies help markets spur competition. And while businesses are always going to want help, it's market competition that really serves the interests of consumers. So what we need to remember is that a strategy or policy that's pro-business is not necessarily good for the market overall. Right. And that also means it's not necessarily good for consumers or people or our society overall. Betsy, Justin, we've been talking about businesses and all these big entities. Is there a way we can see these dynamics about entry, exit and long run profitability in our day to day? These dynamics are a big part of our lives because we earn the equivalent of excess profits in other ways. Say you've just discovered a terrific restaurant. Well, if other people also discover that they could make a a taste profit by going to the same restaurant, well, they're going to start calling up and taking all the reservations. They're competing with you for those scarce spots, and they might compete until it becomes difficult for you to get a spot too. And if you want to think about what businesses do, right, that's why you might not tell all your friends and family, or you might not post it on social media. You might think, ah, this spot, it's too special to let the world know about. The only way you'll keep your culinary profit is by erecting barriers to entry. So if you discover something good, don't tell anyone about it. That's the conclusion to the episode. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.